0: Well, good morning again. Uh, over the next four weeks, we are going to be looking at the genealogy of Jesus as it's found in the Gospel of Matthew. And as Matthew begins his Gospel, he tells us that we're to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And as you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you realize one thing. Our Savior has the blood of sinners coursing Through his veins. Our Savior has the blood of sinners coursing through his veins. He has the blood of broken relationships. He has the blood of dysfunctional families. He even has the blood of murder, the blood of division, the blood of every sort of scandalous sin. And unique in Matthew's genealogy in the ancient world is actually to name these family members that are scandalous family members and especially the mothers of Jesus. And so we're going to be spending the next four weeks looking at the mothers of Jesus and realizing in unique and profound and hopefully shocking ways that our Savior came to save his people from their sins and our Savior has the blood of sinners coursing through his veins. So Aaron's going to read to us from Genesis 38 to give us a picture of that.
1: You're excited to spend some time in the Word together. (laughs) You have the entirety of Genesis 38 printed there. I'm only going to read, only going to read (laughs) verses 6 through 26, just so you know. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judas said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute? who was at Anahim at the roadside. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. And now to Matthew chapter 1, I'll read verses 1 through 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, And Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's
0: pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask as we turn to it for the next few minutes that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, and wills to obey, that we might see Jesus high and lifted up. Amen. Well, when I was a youth pastor, I would have students come to me and complain about how their parents wouldn't let them watch certain movies. And I would respond sympathetically and say, well, what is it that you want in that movie? What exactly are you looking for? You want sex, you want violence, you want betrayal, you want murder, you want revenge, you want war, you want passion, what is it that you want to watch in this movie that your parents won't let you? And I can tell you exactly where to find what you're looking for in the Bible. So all you got to do is go ask your parents if you have permission to read your Bible. And if you have permission to read your Bible, then come back to me and let's start looking. I don't think anybody up, ever took me up on my offer. I think that they thought that I was joking. I think that they could not imagine that such descriptive stories would be found in such a boring book like the Bible. Well, how wrong they were. Genesis 38 is a perfect example of this. What in the world is Genesis 38 doing in our Bibles? It's tame compared to a recent blockbuster, La La Land, the love story, the love triangle there. If it were turned into a movie, I'm sure that it would beat La La Land out for an Oscar. It's not featured in any children's storybook Bibles. We have five kids, I've been reading children's storybook Bibles for 22 years i never read the story of Genesis 38 in any children's storybook Bible. It's not a story that we preach about. In fact, as I was preparing this sermon, I searched and searched and searched for a sermon on Genesis 38 that I could steal. And there weren't any. There was one sermon out of 500 in the book of Genesis on one site on Genesis chapter 38. There were preachers who were preaching through the entire book of Genesis and they would skip right over Genesis 38 like it didn't exist. It's such a strange text. We don't really know what to do with it. It challenges our assumptions on how we're supposed to read the Bible. You see, many people think that the Bible is a book of virtues, it's a story of moral um, examples and moral characters that we're to try to emulate. But that's not what the Bible is all about. You see, if you read the Bible this way, who are you going to be like in Genesis 38? Who are you going to try to emulate? Are you going to try to tell anybody that you're seeking to do what Tamar did? Are you going to try to tell anybody to go and do what Judah did? See, that's why it's not in children's Bibles. You don't want your kids getting any strange ideas. Well, what in the world is Genesis 38 doing in the Bible? And how should we understand this strange text? And more than that, how in the world are we going to apply it to our lives? What does this portion of God's Word have to say to us, people who are single, married, male, female, Christian, or non-Christian? Well, let's dig into this strange but surprising Scripture. And we just want to look this morning at two things. We want to look at Tamar's risk and Judah's recognition, Tamar's risk, and Judah's recognition. Our text highlights Tamar's holy and righteous risk. Now, there's some background that we must cover in order to understand Tamar's risk. Judah is the great-grandson of Abraham, and God had promised to Abraham that the whole world would be redeemed and rescued by him through his family, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And he called Abraham's to be family to be holy, to be different, to be set apart, to be distinct from the other families in the world. And he also promised to Abraham that kings and rulers would come from his family and that that was one of the ways in which they would bring blessing to the world. And God told the family of Abraham that one of the ways that they were to be distinct and separate from the world was not to marry uh, other nations, not to marry especially the Canaanite nations. And this command wasn't for ethnic reasons. It was for religious reasons. God did not want his people being drawn to worship other gods, other deities. And so one way to ensure in the ancient world that you would remain faithful to your deity was to have your children marry people who shared the same religious convictions But some people spurred this wisdom and began to marry foreigners. Sometimes this was done well, in a case that we're going to read next week in the story of Ruth. And sometimes this was done out of hardness of heart, out of a disregard for the wisdom of God. And sometimes the foreigners that married into the family of God actually had more faith than the people of God. Sometimes the foreigners would be the faithful ones. And that's exactly what is going on here in Genesis 38. Judah married a Canaanite woman out of the hardness of his heart. Judah's story up to this point has been complete disregard for the promises of God. In fact, in the earlier chapters, he's the one who has orchestrated the events to sell his brother Joseph into slavery and to trick his father Jacob to think that his brother Joseph is dead He's fled from his brothers to start life on his own, life away from his family, life away from the people of God and from Abraham. He's shown utter content for the people of God by marrying a Canaanite woman. He's not raised his sons in the fear and in the honor of belonging to the Lord. He has disregard for these protective, life-giving boundaries that God has entrusted to his family. And so now as his children begin to die off, He does what's so easy to do in any dysfunctional relationship, and that is to blame. And so he blames Tamar for his son's death. And in blaming Tamar for his son's death, he refuses to care for Tamar as a widow. Judah is not being a leader. Judah is not being a ruler, a protector. Judah is being utterly selfish and self-serving. You see, it was Judah's responsibility within his family to ensure that his deceased son's lineage would continue on, that there would be a genealogy beyond Judah and his sons, that his generation would continue for generations and generations to come. Ur died before he had a son, and so it was Judah's privilege to uh, see a son raised up for Ur and to continue the family line for Ur. And the custom in the ancient world, the custom in Israel, lie, Israel was to give uh, the daughter to Ur, so that Ur's or to Ur's brother, so that his family could continue, so that a name could continue for Ur, so that Ur could have a firstborn, and so that Ur would be able to continue to have children in the world. So Judah gives Onan, Ur's younger brother, to. Uh, Tamar. And Onan refuses to have a son with Tamar. And so God judges Onan as well. So in this family, Onan and Ur are both dead. And there's only one son left, Shula, And he's the one by whom there needs to have a son in order for the name to continue. And Judah has no intentions of providing Shua for Tamar. You see, although Tamar has lost two husbands, it's still Judah's responsibility to care for her and to protect her and to provide for her. He's supposed to give his third son to her, but he has no regard for this duty. He has no regard for ensuring that the family name will continue. He promises that one day Tamar will be able to marry his third son But both he and Tamar, as we read the text, know that he's lying. You see, Judah despises Tamar. He blames Tamar for the death of his first two sons, and he wants nothing to do with Tamar. He wishes that Tamar were dead. So he sends her off back to her father's house, lonely, broke, destitute, She has no one to care for her, no one to protect her, no one to provide for her. Judah has shirked every responsibility that he's supposed to have as a leader of his family. But Tamar, she doesn't shirk her responsibility. She wants to be part of Judah's family. She wants to unite herself to Abraham's family. She wants to continue the family line When Judah is willing to let the promises of God die out with Shua, she wants to be faithful. And she's a faithful widow, still part of the family, still faithful to the family, even though Judah has spurned her. But she goes about being a faithful bride in the strangest, most surprising way. When she realizes that Judah has no intention of giving her The third son, she takes matters into her own hands. She practices risky righteousness. She takes off one set of clothes and puts on another set of clothes for a night. She exchanges her widow's clothes for that of a prostitute. She tricks Judah into thinking that she's someone else. She deceives Judah into thinking that she's an unfaithful woman. And when Judah learns of her unfaithfulness months later, Judah is outraged. And the text reveals the true nature of Judah's hard heart toward her. His disdain, his hatred, and his double standard. You see, Judah's fine. Judah's okay with justifying his own infidelity. But as soon as he learns, the minute he learns that Tamar has been unfaithful, He says, burn her, burn her, kill her, get rid of her in the most humiliating, most shameful way. You see, burning was not something that was practiced within Israel, and in fact, it wasn't really practiced within the other nations either. It was reserved for the very worst cases, the greatest criminals, the greatest offenders, And Judah, in treating her like the worst possible criminal, has no love for her, has no regard for her, has no mercy for her. He does not care about her at all as one of his daughters. In his mind, she's already killed his sons, and she deserves to die immediately. Burn her, destroy her, remove her from all memory. Kill this wicked woman in the most painful and in the most humiliating way. That's Judah's heart toward her. And so, as they bring her out to be burned, she gives up something that she's been holding on to for a while. It's a cord, it's a staff, it's the signet ring of the man who got her pregnant. And shockingly, surprisingly, ironically, they're Judas. And she asks Judah, "Do you recognize them? Do you know them? Can you identify them?" And Judah says, "Yes, I can." He knows them. Well, he recognizes them. And with this revelation, Judah is changed. Judah is transformed. He's cut to the part. He's pierced. He has a breakthrough. He no longer sees her as an unfaithful adulterer, but as a true, loyal, faithful bride who's risked her life for the sake of her family. He recognizes her faithfulness, her righteousness. He says, she is righteous, not I. She is righteous, not I. Judah, the deceiver, has been deceived and this deception has changed him. This deception has cut him to the heart. You see, Judah in the previous chapter deceived his father into thinking that Joseph was dead. He brought his brother's robe to his father and asked his father, Do you recognize this robe? Do you know this robe? And his father did. And his father was tricked into thinking that his son Joseph had died. And now Tamar does the exact same thing to him. She dresses up as someone that she's not. She tricks Judah the trickster with her robe. Judah brings his father a robe that he thinks ends in death. Tamar puts on a robe for the night that leads to life. Because Tamar wants Judah's line to continue. When Judah is willing to throw it all away, She believes in the promises that God has made to Judah and to his family. When Judah shirks those responsibilities, she takes holy risk. She practices righteousness in the riskiest way possible, risking her very own life. Judah recognizes all this. Judah sees her righteousness, her faithfulness, her loyalty Through Tamar's risk, Judah is changed, and he doesn't anymore shirk his responsibilities. He doesn't anymore run away from his family. He's no longer cold and selfish and hard and mean. He's changed. He's transformed. And from this point on in Judah's story, as you read it in the rest of Genesis, he becomes someone who protects others. Someone who speaks up for others. Someone who's concerned for others. He becomes a leader in his family. He takes holy risk for his family. He practices risky righteousness on behalf of his family. He sacrifices for his family. He's willing to give up his own life for the sake of his family as the rest of the story unfolds. He becomes a new man. He becomes a new father. Through Judah... When Judah was willing to throw it all away, kings are raised up. Leaders are raised up. uh, Redeemers are announced. Tamar gives birth to twins. And the youngest Perez eventually becomes the one through whom King David is born. Perez means to break through. And through this event... Judah breaks through to become the leader and the ruler that God has commissioned him to be. And many, many generations later, Judah, Tamar, Perez are mentioned in the text that we just read in Matthew chapter 1. You see, in the ancient world, genealogies were of great importance. When we read the Bible, what do you and I do? When we get to any genealogy, we quickly skip over it. We say, I can't pronounce these names. I don't know what to do with all these strange, strange characters. But genealogies were some of the most important parts of the Bible. They're proof that God has not abandoned his people. They're proof that sin has not destroyed the human race. You see, when we read this story in Genesis 38, the story should end with Judah and his three sons. But God in his mercy, God in his grace raises up somebody like Tamar who's willing to take this holy risk. And through her, these sons are born. And then through them, more and more and more sons and leaders and redeemers are born to God's people. And through Tamar, she eventually gives birth in her family to Jesus, the true Adam, the true Man, the true name. Jesus didn't, his name didn't die when he died. Even though he died on a cross without having any children, without having a family of his own, three days following his crucifixion, he rose again from the dead. And because he rose again from the dead, he lives on and so does his name. And his name has become the name that is above every name His name is the great and final and last name. And his name is Lord. His name is Savior. His name is King. There is no other name. All these names in the Old Testament, all these genealogies that we read about in the Old Testament, they're all pointing forward to the name of Jesus. The one that Judah and Tamar and their sons were longing for. Friends, Genesis 38, it's not about sex. Strange sex. It's about salvation. It's not about strange encounters, strange customs. It's about the inbreaking of God's life. It's not about broken relationships. It's about God's reign breaking out into the world. Genesis 38 is a strange, wonderful, weird, crazy account of the God who saves. Of the God who comes to sinners like you and me and brings his radical grace to us. It's about the God who uses the Tamars of the world and the holy risks that his people take. It's about the God who transforms the Judas of this world from abusers to protectors. It's about the God who raises up kings and leaders for his people. It's about the God who cares and provides for his people even when they run far, far away from him, even when they want to throw out all of his promises. It's about the God who will rescue his people even when they reject him. It's about the God who causes us to recognize his grace, even and especially when his grace comes to us in the strangest and severest ways. It's about the God who transforms us from wanting to take life from others to living sacrificial lives for the sake of others. So friends, Genesis 38 should be in every single children's Bible. It should be a story that our kids know well. It should be a story that we tell over and over and over again in the church. It should be preached on regularly. It should not be skipped over because it's a story about God's amazing grace. So as we close, let me make just a few applications for us. First, be somebody who takes holy risks. Be somebody who takes holy risks. Be somebody who practices risky righteousness. Don't mimic Tamar. I wouldn't encourage that. But learn from Tamar. Don't do exactly what she did, but embody her story in new and in fresh ways. Creatively think how you can be like Tamar, how you can take holy risks in your relationships, at your work, in your community, in our church. Think about what it would look like for you to practice righteousness and to embody the grace of God in new and fresh and shocking ways. So first, practice risky righteousness. Second, recognize and take ownership of your stuff. Recognize and take ownership of your stuff. When you're confronted with your stuff, your anger, your defensiveness, your tendency to blame shift, your desire for control, your addiction, your apathy, whatever your stuff might be, and we all have plenty of stuff to go around, when you're confronted with your stuff, own it. Be like Judah. He recognized what was his, and he took ownership Of it. When somebody confronts you with your stuff, recognize it. Own up to it. Don't dismiss it. Don't diminish it. Don't defend it. Don't act like it's not there. And especially don't blame others for it. Whatever your stuff is, recognize it. Take responsibility for it. Say, yes, it's mine. Yes, it belongs to me. Thank you. For bringing this to light. And third, especially when you're confronted with your stuff, break out. Grow from what you recognize as un- unhealthy and seek to be healthy. Change. Stop doing what is life-taking. Start doing what is life-giving. The beauty of Christianity is that God's grace meets us wherever we are in life. God's grace isn't for the healthy It's for the sick. It isn't for the righteous. It's for the unrighteous. God's grace never leaves us where we are. It breaks out into new patterns, new habits. It transforms us. It changes us. It grows us. It matures us. It takes us from being abusers to protectors, from being selfish to selfless, from being blame shifters to blame takers, just like we see in Judah's story. Well, friends, God's life is still breaking out in the world. He's used throughout history people like Judah and Tamar. And he still uses people like you and me to cause his life to break out through us. Sometimes he does this in very strange ways. And sometimes he does this in normal, mundane ways. Well, let's strive to be a people and a community that makes room for the life of God to break out through us as we take holy risks. For him let's pray father we do thank you so much for this portion of your word Lord we ask that your life would break out in and through us in mundane and normal ways and in shocking and surprising ways thank you so much that your grace is greater than our sin when we want to stop when we want to give up when we want to throw it all away Your grace comes to us and brings new life. Bring the new life of Christ and the new life of your grace to us even now. For his sake we pray. Amen.